Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility. Today is a very timely topic. We're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on fertility treatment and pregnancy. But before we get to that, please do us a favor. I would really personally appreciate it if you would go over to iTunes and give us a ranking or a rating, either one. We read every single one of them. In fact, we share them amongst our staff. It is a, a boost to us and we really appreciate it. But also, uh, not only is it a boost to us, it is how uh, iTunes, it's the rankings are how what iTunes uses to know uh, which uh, podcast to recommend. So the more rankings we have, the, the more likely they are to recommend us. And more than anything, we really appreciate that. So pop over to iTunes and do that. You can either do a star ranking or a you give us a comment. Either one would be very appreciated. All right, today we're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on fertility treatment and pregnancy with Dr. David Adamson. Dr. Adamson is a consulting reproductive endocrinologist and surgeon. He is medical director of Equal 3 Fertility. He is a clinical professor at Stanford University and associate clinical professor at UC San Francisco. He is the past president of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, as well as the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, and is the founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of Advanced Reproductive Care, ARC Fertility. Welcome, Dr. Adamson, back to Creating a Family. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you very much for having me, Don. It's really nice to be here with you. Uh, I want to start by by just saying that we're... This is a, even though we seem like we have been at this for a while, the truth is we are still in the process of learning a lot, and in particular, learning a lot about the impact on uh, fertility treatment in pregnancy. Uh, so what we say now may not be what we know even in three months, six months, something like that. So do keep that in mind. The other thing I wanted to mention to people is that there is a study ongoing that is seeking pregnant women between four and 10 weeks of pregnancy to participate in a study to help us learn more. Um, it's called the ASPIRE study, Assessing the Safety of Pregnancy in the Coronavirus Pandemic. And as I mentioned, it was for women between four and 10 weeks currently, four and 10 weeks pregnant. And it's helped to understand the spread of COVID-19 infection among pregnant women and how the infection will affect the health and well-being of the, both the moms and their babies. So you can get more information at this website, aspire, A-S-P-I-R-E dot U-C-S-F, that stands for University of California, San Francisco. So aspire dot U-C-S-F dot E-D-U. It's really simple. It does uh, involve uh, uh, finger pricks. I bet you do it yourself. Um, and uh, it's an easy study to get to enrolled in, so pop over there and do that. All right, uh, Dr. Adamson, what is the current position of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, otherwise known as ASRM, on whether to proceed with infertility treatment? Well, Don, that's a great question, and uh, the answer uh, will give a different uh result or have a different impact on individual people. Uh, as you know, when uh, this, uh, this pandemic uh, first uh, became more visible in the United States, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine uh, put together a task force that recommended that all uh, infertility treatments be stopped 
and even recommended that people consider delaying uh, getting pregnant on their own uh, for a number of reasons, which we can come back to if you'd like, uh, but really involving uh, patient safety, baby safety, uh, medical personnel uh, safety uh, issues surrounding the overtaxing of uh, hospital and medical facilities, uh, the lack of uh, protective equipment uh, for people, and also real questions about whether or not uh, the coronavirus might have a negative impact on pregnancy. Uh, and in addition, in the final analysis, to really feeling that it was everyone's responsibility in society uh, to participate in trying to uh, limit uh, the, the spread of this disease, uh, especially in the early days when we really didn't know much about it. So there were many, many considerations that went into this. That said, uh, it's always been the case that uh, ASRM and SART, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, and I would note the World Health Organization, have considered infertility a disease. Even the American Medical Association recognized it as a disease in 2017. So it, this wasn't done because people didn't think that fertility mattered. It, it was definitely considered a disease and very important. And even at the time that the ASRM uh, recommendations, it was really a guidance uh, just because it, it hadn't been through formal guideline process. It was a guidance recommendations not to do any fertility treatment or IVF except for patients who were going into treatments that could potentially render them infertile in the future, sterile in the future, for example, chemotherapy for mm -hmm. cancer, et cetera. So they recommended everything be shut down. But they have continued the task force. It's, it's put out reports every two weeks. And the situation now has gotten to the point where uh, SRM has said that obviously we should continue treating uh, patients who have uh, 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 cancer treatment uh, coming up, but that it was very appropriate for clinics to start to open up, the plan to open up again, uh, based on the situation in their own community, uh, based on uh, regulations in their own community, and taking into account the needs for uh, social distancing and all the different protective approaches, which we can discuss, that are important to protect the, the women going to have treatment, uh, protect the staff that are there, and, and ensure that uh, best possible outcomes could be attained in a pregnancy. So the patients are being prioritized. Those who are older, those who have uh, diminished ovarian reserve are going to the top of the list to get back in sooner because a delay in time uh, would obviously be more serious for them. So clinics are starting to open up mm -hmm. all over the country. A lot of them are not really fully open yet. They're not going to be open at full capacity probably for some time, uh, but certainly many are trying to open very quickly. And uh, they're going to, it's going to be different, uh, which we can talk about what that will look like, but the patient care will, will certainly be somewhat different when people come in. So the good news is uh, treatment's starting again, and everybody's very, very happy about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people are definitely happy. Um, I have heard the same thing you're talking about, which is, uh, prioritizing 
um, patients. The hard part is that everybody <laughs> feels when you've been trying for a while to get pregnant, um, it, it feels like a priority, but uh, treatments are starting uh, slowly. Uh, and, and the good news right. is that for, uh, the clinics that we're hearing from are all approaching it uh, with definite uh, consideration to making certain that there is a lot of social distancing and cleaning rooms uh, thoroughly, uh, exam rooms after people have been in. So things like that, everybody is, is doing their best. Um, yes, I, I would just uh, answer that. I, I would just like to mention again, one of the, you know, there's always a tiny silver lining. I think that <clears throat> one of the really good things that came out of this is when, when fertility treatments were stopped, um, I, I think the concept that was around 10 or 20 years ago that maybe fertility was an elective kind of problem mm -hmm. uh, was addressed very quickly. And it was very encouraging and reassuring to see that essentially all of our professional colleagues, not only here in the U.S., but, but around the world, all said, look, infertility is a disease. It's very serious. This is urgent. There's very major, you know, psychological consequences of not being able to go through treatment, that this is a very real problem. And in guidelines that have come out, Dawn, uh, infertility treatment is, is really at the very top end of treatments that need to get started again as soon as possible. So it's really, it's really good at that least to good. see the recognition of how important this is uh, for our patients and, and how important it is to get it started again. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That is, I hadn't thought about that as a silver lining, but you're exactly right. It is. And, you know, I honestly was very impressed with ASRM for uh, making the decision they did because it had to be an unpopular decision. And, and they, they didn't make it lightly and they didn't make it permanent, <laughs> but they made it, uh, it really seemed like they did it with a great deal of deliberation and, and forethought and then continued to revisit, um, which it all just, I was, I was pretty impressed. I, uh, perhaps I, uh, uh, perhaps I shouldn't be, but I, I thought, I thought they did a good job of trying to weigh all the, the, the competing factors. And one of I the big, agree. yeah, one of the big competing factors, and I want to move into that. And that was the impact of, of, of contracting COVID-19 while pregnant. And, and I want to talk about both the impact to the mom as well as to the baby. So COVID-19 is part of a family of viruses that includes SARS and MERS. Uh, what do we know about how SARS and MERS impacted pregnant women and their babies? Because they were far enough back that we now should, they weren't as widespread, so we don't have huge numbers, but they were far enough in the, in the past that we should be able to have uh, studied how the women and now how their children are doing uh, subsequently. So it took uh, the, the first point on that, uh, Dawn, is it took a long time uh, to be able to get data. You know, it was five or six or seven years uh, to, to start to get data from that. Uh, studies were retrospective. And uh, and another problem was that there, there weren't as many people in the studies, which is, you know, a bit of a problem. So um, it, it does appear that, you know, there was certainly some impact in some cases, but, you know, not, not in others. And so it certainly wasn't like Zika virus, uh, where there really was a, um, you know, very significant impact, uh, impact on babies. 
and it's important to note that the impact can be uh, an impact on the on the on the mom, the the woman who's pregnant, <clears throat> that you know creates uh, illness in her, and that illness in the mother makes it more likely that there could be complications in pregnancy, you know, by and of itself, uh, as opposed to say you know Zika, which has has direct impact on the baby. So there's definitely an impact in any of these you know coronaviruses. If a woman gets sick with it and gets quite ill, then that illness by and of itself is is going to have uh, a negative impact on the baby. And this is, you know, primarily how SARS and MERS uh, would occur, uh, but doesn't affect everybody. And so this is why, you know, there was some, you know, early thoughts of reassurance, which are probably reasonable. I'm sure we'll discuss them with, you know, uh, COVID-19, that this coronavirus, you know, was not likely going to have a direct impact on the on the baby, okay. uh, but it's important to note that any serious illness and pregnancy uh, is going to have a negative impact on the mom and potentially on the baby. Okay, and and this is why there's always concern about contracting the disease, even if there's not a known, you know, direct direct impact on the fetus in utero. Okay, well, first let's say our our pre- first let's ask are pregnant women at a higher risk of contracting COVID-19. We know that pregnancy changes our bodies in many ways. Uh, are, are pregnant women more likely to get it? So there's been some conflicting data on this. Uh, there were some early studies that suggested that uh, pregnant women were more likely to get it or had a worse course. Um, it's not entirely clear that, uh, that that's true. Um, and I think right now the, 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 the real answer is we don't know, but I think right now most people don't feel that there's a significantly increased risk of contracting the illness if a woman is pregnant. Uh, there were other concerns that if a pregnant woman contracted it, she would be much sicker than, you know, a non-pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it right right now the answer is we we don't know for sure, but it does not appear that there's a dramatic uh, difference. So uh, again, the answer is we don't know, but the collective data right now would suggest the woman's probably not at a whole lot higher risk of getting it, and she's not at a higher risk of having a really serious disease. That doesn't mean that she can't have it. It just means that the risk mm-hmm. is not likely substantially higher but there you know there are some studies reporting some increased risks than others have have not borne that out the the biggest problem we have right now don is that the data are retrospective they're not complete uh we we don't know the denominator of any of these issues you know how many yeah. pregnant had women had it uh yeah exactly the sick the sick people show up including sick pregnant women so it's it's very very difficult to answer these questions, except it would be fair to say that at this point in time, it does not look as though a pregnant woman should be uh, concerned about a greater than usual risk for either contracting it or for the degree of illness she would have. But there's no question if she gets a serious illness that it could definitely have an impact on the pregnancy. Premature deliveries have occurred. And of course, some babies have become infected after, um, you know, after, after they were delivered and the woman 
not supposed to breastfeed for a couple of weeks if she has coronavirus when she's delivering the baby. So, uh, but there's still much more to be learned than, than what we know about this. Okay. So in general, so, uh, so we know that they're not, well, we don't know anything, but we, the studies that we have, and there's some problems with these studies because we're not, we are, we're not able to do the research that we really want, partly because we don't know how many people, as you point out, have actually, how many pregnant women actually have had it because we only are seeing the sicker of the women. But in general, we know that they're not more likely or it doesn't appear that they are more likely to get COVID-19 and they're no more likely than to have a, uh, a, a serious, a critical uh, uh, presentation of the virus, or at least that's what it looks. That's so, what it looks like. And there's, there, there has been a study recently that suggests that maybe uh, the miscarriage rate could be somewhat higher. But again, the, the problem is that um, the numbers were very, very small. And there's the, the problem of looking at the numerator. In other words, people that are sick, you know, have bad outcomes and then you, but you don't know what the denominator was. So um, it's, it's very difficult uh, you know, as I said, most studies, the general sense would be that um, it's probably not higher, but we, we don't know for sure. There have been a couple okay. of studies that suggested it, uh, it, it, it might be. So mm -hmm. the, the real message, of course, for women who are pregnant is to be especially careful not to get sick, mm -hmm. not to get it if they can avoid it. In general, what are the risks of any respiratory viral infection while pregnant? Um, I mean, because we've got, we've had, we do have evidence of that. The flu goes around every year. Um, and I realize that, that, uh, that the coronavirus is different from the flu. It's a totally different virus, but it is a respiratory viral infection. So what are the risks in general? Well, some, you know, some viruses uh, definitely, you know, cause, uh, increased miscarriage rates, uh, H1N1 did, and uh, HIV can, Zika, of course, and German measles, rubella, which is a major problem if, if someone huge. gets yeah. it, you know, that's a huge problem. And there are others, so there's definitely variability, but the thing is that any um, illness in pregnancy, a respiratory illness, if a woman gets it and has that illness, the body's compromised by that. And then if there's fevers, the body's compromised. And so any, you know, obviously many, 4 million or so, just under 4 million babies born a year. So there are many pregnant women every year. And a lot of them get a cold or get the flu and their babies are perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And so it, it really comes down to, you know, how sick is the person? The biggest issue would be, if someone becomes critically ill and they have a respiratory illness, they have hypoxia and they have high fevers, then these are, are going to be bad for the pregnancy. But many women obviously get a cold and get the flu and, and they're perfectly fine and their babies are fine. So the, the real issue besides avoiding viruses that we know are really serious, such as you know German measles, uh, and, you know, that comes down to vaccinations, which obviously I believe are so important to pregnant women should always make sure that, you know, when they're planning, when women are, are in the reproductive age group, um, 
Uh, they should definitely be making sure their vaccinations are up to date. I mean, I think that's important for everyone, but especially for women who are in the reproductive age group who might be getting pregnant to have their, their immunized, you know, be properly immunized through, through their vaccinations. Uh, so that's, that's step one. And then step two are the general, you know, good health thing, you know, health measures to, to follow. And certainly that includes trying to avoid infectious diseases because most of them aren't going to be a problem, but a few of them could be a, a problem. Most of the ones that are problems you can be vaccinated against. Uh, but the real issue is try not to contract it. And then if you do really get immediate care so that you don't get critically ill because it's the women that are critically ill with these uh, viruses uh, or any disease that are going to have um, a much higher risk of, of not a good outcome with the pregnancy. So what are the risks to the fetus or the baby um, during the different trimesters? Um, and I guess that begs the, the, the question of, is there any evidence that the virus will penetrate the placental barrier? Uh, and, and that question, let's stop for a moment and explain just a bit about how the placenta works and why some viruses, Zika being the most recent one that we can, and German measles and uh, others, uh, are cross, the, cross that barrier and impact the, the fetus, and others do not. So let's talk about the placenta, and then we will segue into talking about the risks to the uh, baby from this virus. Sure. So obviously, uh, you know, the placenta is the baby's uh, connection to the mom. And uh, through the placenta, all the important uh, nutrients, uh, oxygenation, et cetera, uh, for the baby occur. Uh, and so the placenta is a very, very important organ. And, uh, you know, without overstating it, uh, the, there's there's two sides to the placenta because you have the baby and umbilical cord attaches to the placenta and then the placenta attaches to the uterus. Well, the uterus belongs to the mom and it's part of the mom's body. And then the, you know, the, the cord and part of the placenta is, is part of the baby's body. So there's, there's a connection that is sort of the fetal placental, you know, connection where the blood vessels come in from the mom's side and bring the, nutrients, uh, nutrition that the baby needs and the oxygen. And this gets transferred across the, uh, the this uh, fetal placental uh, uh, membrane and unit in, into the baby. And the thing is that depending uh, on a number of factors, but in particular, the size of the virus, uh, some will pass through the placenta from the mom's side to the baby's side, and some won't. Uh, so Zika virus can, rubella can, these are why these can be so dangerous to babies. All the evidence we have right now is that the coronavirus does not pass across this barrier. Uh, and we, we don't have you know, proof yet, and we, we cannot consider it proof. But it, it does not appear uh, that this virus can cross that barrier. So that's good news because it means that the virus is not, you know, going to get directly into the baby and cause a problem with the baby's development in either the first, second, or third trimester. And so that's very good news. 
However, uh, what we do know about this virus, and most things we really don't know a lot yet, we're learning. But this virus, uh, the coronavirus, does seem to cause uh, a number of different problems in the body. Um, it certainly come out starting while well, it's a respiratory virus and causes all these problems with the lungs, but it also appears uh, very much that this virus causes small blood clots, microemboli, uh, in the body, in particular in the capillaries, which are very, very small uh, blood vessels that, that um, they come from big blood vessels, the smaller blood vessels, the capillaries, and these are the tiniest blood vessels where the the, the nutrients and the oxygen come out of them into the um, into the placenta in this case, or into all the tissues in the body. So it it appears that this virus can cause blood clotting in these smaller vessels. It also appears from some studies that it can cause blood clotting on the mother's side of the placenta, on the mother's side of the placenta. So even though the virus doesn't cross, we do not think the virus crosses into the baby, it could potentially cause blood clotting and damage on the mom's side of the placenta, mm -hmm. such that the baby you know, wouldn't get sufficient nutrients or oxygen or whatever. Now, this is just, theory at this point we don't really know for sure that this is happening a lot there have been a couple of studies that showed some microemboli and placentas of women who are in the third trimester late in pregnancy we don't really know how often this happens or whether it's only with really severe disease we don't know if it happens in the first or second trimester or if it did how much of an impact it would have um, and so there's there's more unknowns than knowns. Uh, how and that's you know one of the reasons this uh, Spire study, which you mentioned earlier, that's being done uh, UCSF is so important uh, for women who are in early pregnancy to uh, to uh, participate in this because we need to get this information uh, to find out whether or not there might be some impact. But so mm -hmm. far, most of the women who are pregnant have babies have delivered nice, healthy babies, even when they've had the coronavirus, unless they've had really, really severe disease, in which case there's been, you know, prematurity and some other, uh, you know, early delivery uh, because the mom was, was so sick. So is that the risk that we're, is, is the primary risk is of premature birth that is perceived as the, the risk or miscarriage, I assume, if there's early enough in the pregnancy? because the mother gets too sick to support the baby. Right. Now, we're not sure about, you know, if we define miscarriage as being up to about 22 weeks or so, which mm -hmm. is the definition we generally use. We really don't know whether the miscarriage rates changed or not, which is one of the reasons for, for this study. We don't know. The studies that have come out so far have been in third trimester, so it's been about premature delivery, early delivery of babies. And the moms who had these problems were mostly very, very sick. Uh, there, there was a case recently reported out of Switzerland uh, where the mom did not appear that sick uh, in pregnancy uh, and um, had a, um, you know, a bad outcome in the pregnancy. 
Uh, so again, we can't state any of these, uh, uh, you know, state any of these conclusions with, with proof. And we know this for sure. There's still more that we don't know than we know, but, but the best evidence now, if the mom is not really sick, uh, in the third trimester, she's probably going to be okay. Although there, there has been at least one study that showed that somebody not very sick, um, had a very bad outcome. Um, but uh, generally, it's it's thought to be a disease, and we don't think the virus crosses into the baby. But if the virus causes blood clotting in a placenta, if it does to a major degree, it clearly might have some impact on the on the baby just through the baby not getting the nutrition right. and oxygen. Not because the virus itself has passed over, but because the blood clots have interfered with the placenta doing its job of of of, of allowing nutrition. Uh, and oxygen and everything to pass through the mom to the baby. Exactly. Correct. Okay. Yes. And so we know that, well, we, again, when I say we know, the truth is we don't know much, but we think that in addition, the, the, this virus, uh, the coronavirus, has, uh, this particular coronavirus, has, uh, of course, we know that it has a respiratory impact. We think that it might also have clotting impacts. What are some of the other impacts that are coming out that it's possible knowing full well that we don't, what we, what, as you said, what we don't know is more than what we do know, but how this virus might uh, express itself in the body? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question, Don, because this virus is sort of surprising us every week. Um, you know, as you mentioned, when it first started, we said, well, it's a respiratory virus and you know, spread by droplets, which which we still believe. Um, but then, as time went by, we we saw that uh, there were these issues of blood clotting problems uh, that people were having, which was really quite a surprise. And along with those blood clotting problems, came reports of people having uh, uh, problems with uh, smell, which which seemed to be mm -hmm. quite different. Remember when that first came out? Everybody said, yeah. "Gee, why would you have abnormal smell with a?" Respiratory well, that one, virus. Well, that kind that, of made sense because it could impact. It seems like then that's the upper respiratory system. Where, well, you know, it, it could, and yeah. that was probably part of it. But it also it appears, and again, the data are also preliminary that in fact, um, you know, if you have a problem with with smell, it could have some impact on how the disease goes. Uh, and there's also been, obviously, there's now reports of people having uh, stomach uh, problems, bowel problems. Uh, diarrhea uh, has been uh, an important symptom that's been reported by some people. Uh, and now as, as people get more sick, there are real issues with strokes, um, heart attacks, uh, and, and kidney uh, failure, kidney problems, and even and liver problems. And there, been, there was a famous uh, actor who uh, had a, a clot in their leg and had to mm -hmm. have an, an amputation of their leg be, because of uh, coronavirus complication of a mm -hmm. clot in their leg. So from just uh, what appeared to be a respiratory virus, this virus indeed um, appears to have potential impact you know, in many uh, parts of the body, in many organs in the body. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure you've just read recently, there's a concern about, a you know, Kawasaki-type syndrome, mm -hmm. um, which is a, can be a severe syndrome in, 
in children with you know heart problems and and other um, immune uh, issues uh, that that can occur and and the, this has just been reported I think in the last week or so in New York right, right. and so the early story of course was well you know children kids don't get sick with this um, but we're not really so sure that's true that it it may be that it just affects uh, children in a different way so this this is why I think uh, we all want to be so careful, you know, before we open up too fast or, or take this too lightly or think that young people don't get sick or babies don't get sick. Um, there's still a lot we don't know about this virus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's obviously part of the scary part is that, as we said before, what we don't know is more than what we do. Yes. Um, so let's talk about the risk of an infected mom passing the virus on to the baby after birth. So she goes through labor. Is there any indication that that she should not go through a vaginal delivery? And is there, is there any indication that is increasing her risk or a, a C-section would be suggested? Well, I know certainly a C-section has been suggested uh, in, a, in a lot of circumstances that that's been the recommended approach. Um, I'm not sure what the exact recommendation is today. Uh, for a C-section or not, um, you know, would a, it, it probably depends somewhat on obviously on the health of the mom and uh, what have you. Uh, but there's definitely, you know, there's definitely going to be a chance of an infection of the baby, you know, no, really no matter how the baby's born. Uh, I think uh, we're still waiting to see, you know, what the data will show us on that. So I, I can't give you a firm recommendation and hospitals of course, some maternity units now are having, um, you know, all sorts of very, you know, rigorous recommendations, uh, gui guidance around mm -hmm. how you manage women who are pregnant when they come to the hospital and they're making the determinations, you know, who would have a C-section or a vaginal birth. And this is certainly something that uh, I think uh, any women by the time definitely they're into the third trimester uh, want to be talking with their obstetrician about what are the rules and the process and the protocols at the hospital because they're quite different now and they've they've really been individualized in a, in a lot of places so the problem is any recommendations now are still coming based on very very little data right so yeah, there, exactly. there's a lot of personal opinion about what should be done but there's not a lot of data about it certainly it's true that if a mom is sick uh, with the coronavirus as COVID-19 and she delivers a baby, the recommendation is clearly to try to avoid infecting the baby. So the babies, you know, are not being breastfed and being kept away uh, from the mom, which is clearly not a, not a good thing. Uh, so uh, that's another reason, of course, to try very, very hard not to get infected with this uh, if you're pregnant. Are they recommending that moms uh, should be tested? Uh, are they, are, are they being tested coming in there? A mother comes in, either in labor or, or immediate, third trimester immediately prior to labor, are they running tests to determine whether or not she is infected? Well, uh, I think the short answer to that is in, in most places, almost uh, certainly yes, uh, they are being tested. There are multiple issues with the testing, as you probably know. I mean, the first and biggest issue is it's very difficult to get a test, uh, yeah. both the viral the, test. They're not available, right. They're exactly. not available, right. So. 
So the, the, that's the first problem. If they're not available, then you can't get one done. And the second problem is that <clears throat> there are many different kinds of tests out there right now. And the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has, has not had a lot of time to try to assess all these tests. They've, and these tests have been created very quickly uh, mm -hmm. by companies. And they, you know, there's a lot of reasons that we want them to develop these tests. But it's absolutely true that a test that might be developed in a laboratory and might perform quite well in a lab does not necessarily perform that well if taken outside of that lab into the real life situation. Um, one of the biggest problems, uh, besides the facts that tests, the, the fact that tests haven't all been validated to you know how often do they give a true positive and how often they give a true negative, which is which uh, can be uh, you know variable among tests, and it can also be very different in a real life situation. Another big problem is the getting the sample, getting the swab that's being done that has to go through the nose into the back of the oral pharynx. Uh, is somewhat uncomfortable, and there's no question that a lot of times the swab itself uh, has not been obtained properly, and then sometimes it's not placed in the optimal type of culture medium that was designed for the test that's being done, and then sometimes the tests are being done in labs where they haven't had a lot of experience with it or where they've had to modify the protocol for doing the test because they didn't have you know, exactly the, the reagents or, or the, the types of equipment to do the test the way it was designed. So the long and the short of it is on the, on the viral tests that there's still a lot of problems with them, but it's probably fair to state if a woman uh, gets a test or a man, anybody gets a test that's positive on the viral test, it's, it's highly likely they do have the virus. They do have the virus. They are sick. And so the test is reasonable to do and is being recommended for people before they go into any type of medical procedure, certainly including delivery, right? And so, mm -hmm. yes, uh, I believe that practically everywhere, if it's possible and it would be very high priority uh, to test a mom for the virus um, before, you know, when she's, when she's going to come to the hospital, obviously to test her with a questionnaire you know, have you uh, been near somebody who's got COVID, uh, you know, coronavirus, anybody in your home have it? Do you have a fever? Do you have shortness of breath? Have you had, you know, diarrhea, abdominal aches, uh, you know, have you headaches, uh, problems with smell, et cetera. So most places, almost everybody is going through a checklist of symptoms before the woman comes to the hospital and then they will get a viral test done. And then they will, you know, manage uh, accordingly in the in the maternity uh, ward, whether if they're infected or not infected, and decision for a section or or vaginal delivery. Mm -hmm. um, the other side of the coin with the antibody tests of all the problems the virus tests have and more, and the antibody tests are very very difficult to interpret now, such that in terms of dealing with this situation with a pregnant woman. Um, if you had an antibody test on, if a woman had the test done to see if she'd had made antibodies to the virus, the presence or absence of those, of the positive or negative on that test would not be good enough 
uh, to say if she were positive, oh, you're positive, you have antibodies, therefore you're immune, therefore we don't have to worry about you. The tests, for all the reasons just discussed, for viral tests, all apply to antibody tests and then some. Mm -hmm. You could not say that. And so you would not be able to use an antibody test to say, we don't have to worry about it, you're immune. You cannot use an antibody test for that at this time. Yeah, and we don't know. And the problem is we have no idea when the antibody test will be marketed such that they're developed where their reliability is there and their availability is there. So, right. Yeah. It's, it's a, the testing is, is still a huge, huge problem. And mm -hmm. it's very important. We, we try to, you know, get a, a, get a better handle on that soon, get it ramped up so that we have good tests that we know uh, how the, the performance characteristics, how well they work, the true positives, true negatives, that we, we also have to know the prevalence disease in the population to really assess how, how these uh, tests are working. Exactly. So there's a, a lot of work needs to be done on the tests, yeah. on assessment of the tests, and on epidemiologic studies of, of prevalence of this disease um, before we can optimize our use of these tests, not only mm -hmm. for pregnant women, but also, of course, for society and isolating, quarantining people, et cetera. Yeah, and getting back, right? All of that, all of the yes. above. Let me pause for a moment to thank two organizations who are sponsoring the Creating a Family podcast, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community who um, don't believe in the dumbing down of information and, and really want patients uh, to be as educated as possible. One organization is Walgreens and Alliance RX Walgreens Prime. They provide specialized fertility pharmacy services through an experienced care team available 24-7, devoted to helping patients achieve successful outcomes. They understand the importance of timing, which let's be honest is very important in fertility treatment, and the need for personalized treatment, and they are committed to compassionate care and support throughout a patient's journey to have a family. Another organization is Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank. They are dedicated to providing a wide selection of high quality, extensively screened frozen donor sperm and eggs from all races, ethnicities, and phenotypes for both home insemination and fertility treatment. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States to help provide the gift of a family. All right, you have mentioned already that it's a recommendation to, if a mom is actively infected at birth, for her not to, to breastfeed. So that must imply that the virus does pass through breast milk. And have there been studies that indicate that? I'm assuming there are. So um, my understanding of it is there is, and I'm, I'm not a, an expert on lactation or, <laughs> or <laughs> even obstetrics anymore. But uh, <laughs> the other issue is, of course, the mom could, you know, she's going to be talking, sneezing, breathing uh, with the baby. So it would be very easy to, um, you know, pass the real issue is that she'd pass the, the um, virus uh, just from being sick. Right. Yeah. And uh, even and with being, a mask. Yes. Yeah. Because the, you know, the, the mask would, would clearly be helpful if there, if it's a, you know, high quality N95 mask, but, but not necessarily perfect. So, um, 
and you don't want the babies to get sick because we just don't know what the impact's going to be on a little baby. So that's been the recommendation, uh, you know, to date. But again, these things are changing so quickly that the the real expert on this would be the woman's obstetrician. Uh-huh. I will say that uh, the, I have been very impressed. You mentioned earlier with the response of the medical organizations to this. The mm-hmm. uh, American Society for Reproductive Medicine put together a task force of really bright, committed, you know, altruistic professionals who have been working around the clock for a couple of months now trying to understand this disease and professional societies are sharing information. You know, American College of OBGYN uh, is uh, working hard on this and all these organizations are, are putting out guidances on this and updating them frequently as we learn more. So, and I know that the doctors are, you know, going on, and I know this because when I go on the webinars, I, there's hundreds, if not, you know, in the thousands of doctors on some of the webinars. So they're right. working hard to uh, understand this. And a lot of it is uh, contextual, but where, um, you know, where the woman is. So the most important thing here I would suggest is to communicate frequently with your obstetrician write down any questions that come up to you so you don't forget them. Probably many of them are providing services by telehealth now, Mm -hmm. Uh, but stay in touch and make sure that you're comfortable knowing what experience you're going to have, you know, when you go, Um, can your husband be there or not? And, and, you know, what are all the the things that are, that are being done to protect everyone? Because there, there will be a lot of changes from quote, the usual situation. Mm-hmm. delivering the baby and breastfeeding and what have you. And and the key here is two things. One, if it do everything you can to not get infected. Right. Uh, so especially during the pregnancy. Yes. Because the reality is it's going to be, it will be a whole lot uh, better experience uh, if you don't have that to deal with. And the other thing that is amazingly clear from this discussion is how much we need good data we yes. need more information, and that brings us back to the ASPIRE study, A-S-P-I-R-E, ASPIRE study. So any women out there who are anywhere from four to ten weeks pregnant, please sign up for this study uh, so that we, you will be helping not only yourself, because they're going to be educating you throughout the study as well, but just as important, you're going to be educating the rest of us so that this time next year we will have better information to be sharing although hopefully maybe this time next year we'll have a vaccine so it won't be as big of a deal, but nonetheless, it may be, and we need information. To get more information about the ASPIRE study, you can go to their website, aspire, A-S-P-I-R-E dot U-C-S-F dot E-D-U, aspire dot U-C-S-F dot E-D-U. Please spread the word to any woman you know who is within that pregnancy range. Uh, that would be great. Uh, and the last question, uh, uh, Dr. Adamson, I believe you've already said, do we really have much information about how newborns are faring if they do get the disease? Or let's just newborns or even babies up to one year. Sure. There, well, there are definitely um, a couple of reports about uh, newborns uh, that have died uh, from coronavirus. Uh, but there's also reports about lots of babies that have done just fine. So I think uh, 
again, unfortunately, the answer is we, we don't really know, except that um, it would seem that most of the time the babies are great. They do Babies do okay. They get sick, but they get better. Uh, but there have been some babies that were very sick and did not get better. Uh, and so, uh, again, uh, you don't want to be overly fearful about it because the outcome is probably going to be just fine for your baby. Uh, but it's not, uh, it, it's, we're not able to say, um, oh, you can take it casually because everything's fine. It's not a problem. Uh, it, it could be a problem. And again, it will likely come down uh, to something that actually has not been talked about too much, interestingly, but I, I personally think it's very important. And that's about the dose of virus that anybody gets mm-hmm. when they get it. And yep. I think this is one of the reasons we're seeing so many deaths in, um, you know, in, in, in retirement homes uh, uh, is that. Uh, and medical course, professionals too. Yes. And, and, but of course, in those homes, you have a, you know, you have a vulnerable population there. But the other thing you have, and for medical professionals, is that you can have much more frequent exposure to much higher dose of virus. Mm -hmm. Because why? Because you're seeing the really sick people who have a lot of virus probably most of the time. And then if you're seeing a lot of sick people, you're seeing more of them. So that's why we're seeing, you know, otherwise healthy uh, healthcare professionals who'd say, well, they shouldn't get sick, they're young and healthy. But if you get an exposure enough times with a high dose, Mm -hmm. it's not a good thing. So you know, protecting yourself against the diseases, the virus is important. And uh, I do believe that the viral load is probably also very important. And this would certainly, you know, apply to babies as well, uh, you know, neonates and, and, and uh, young, young uh, infants. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, trying to avoid this is, is important. Uh, but for pregnant women to get it, you don't want to be overly fearful because most of the time the moms are doing fine and the babies are doing fine Mm -hmm. but it's not something to take lightly because there can be really really unfortunate outcomes sometimes thank you so much dr david adamson for talking to us today about the impact of the covid 19 on fertility treatment but but just as important on pregnancy Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your doctor. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Adamson, and thank you everybody else for listening. We will see you next week.